0: This is all these tests. This is all the test.
1: This is all these tests. Voluntary cooperation. This station of Welcome back Seymour to another episode testing. of the Uncover Up Conspiracy this Cast I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Klima, and today with me is Nathan Radke. Hi, Nathan. Hello. We,
0: I'm always here.
1: You are always here. Sometimes even
0: just by yourself, right? Well, I live here. I live in the <laughs> studio. I, that's not even a joke. I it's actually live in the bunker.
1: That we go to Nathan's place to record. Uh, with us today is not Elena. She's going to join us next week for Castro's Beard, finally. which we are finally going to do and are promising yet one more time. Today, though, it's just Nathan and I. And we are going to talk about a conspiracy I had not heard about, a very kind of small time event, I guess, relative to some of the stuff we've looked at. It takes place in Canada and uh, the United States. Southern Canada, Northern United States in the... What month is it? It's 1965.
0: December of 1965.
1: December of 1965. Nathan, what happened in Southern Canada, Northern United States in December of 1965?
0: Okay, it's time for us to turn our eyes to the skies again. Ah. Because this is a UFO episode. Oh, good. I like Uh, those. Yeah, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to do a deep dive on this one particular event. It's become known as the Kecksburg UFO incident. Is that with a K? Uh yeah.
1: Keksburg? Like Kecksburg. Not, not Textburg.
0: No, K-E-C-K-S-B-U-R-G. Keksburg. Okay. Which is a tiny little, it's not even a town. It's like a just sort Hamlet. of Hamlet. Uh, not even a Hamlet. Like there's a
1: there's a guy and a cow.
0: There is a fire department. Okay. They've got a fire department, and that's pretty much Kecksburg. <laughs> and so what we're gonna do today is we're going to do a deep dive into this incident uh, and try to decide what happened on December 9th, 1965 over the Guys, and on the ground in Kecksburg. We're also going to tell another story. At the same time, we're telling the story of this event. I think we're also going to be sort of pulling back the curtain on what we do, because I thought it'd be interesting to uh, give more of an inside look as far as what we have to do when we are researching something like this.
1: This is the How the Sausages Are Made episode, is it? This is, you're going to get to see all the gross bits that we do in order to get the final product.
0: Exactly. And so what, Uh, we're doing today is normally we would try to filter out a lot of the extraneous information that we come across, uh, the deep dives that turn into like rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. Normally we try to filter all that out so we can really stay super relevant, but I thought it might be interesting to show what we actually go through when we're trying to research something like this.
1: Okay, because I think that's a question that's come up before with our listeners, it's one that we've touched on in previous episodes, the notion of why are some sources more trustworthy than others? I mean, we often will come out with pretty authoritative and, uh, claims at the end of our episode saying this did or did not happen. And sometimes I wonder, you know, what, what gives us the right to say this. I mean, why are we not just spouting another opinion on par with any other opinion? And when our students ask us this, we actually have good answers. It's not just that these happen to be our opinions and therefore we think they're right. Rather, we we have these opinions for very specific reasons, yeah, uh, which so we're going to look into.
0: This is sort of like an uncover-up, uncover-up. <laughs> we are going to try to make ourselves transparent. And I think that what will become very clear is just how fascinating slash frustrating it is to try to research this stuff. Yeah. That's... And this idea that, that we've talked about before that the closer you look at something, the more confusing it gets. Mm. And the more you learn about something, the more you realize how much you don't know about anything.
1: Okay. So I guess what's the first step in trying to figure something out? Maybe just getting the lay of the land? What's the main what are the main strokes of the story? What happened or what what do we think happened? Is yeah. that
0: right? It's sort of like we get the bumper sticker version. The first thing that happens is we'll come across like a reference to a conspiracy or a reference to a, a strange event. And in this case, I heard about this this event that happened in Kecksburg where it looked like something crashed across the sky and then maybe landed in Kecksburg. So the very first thing we do, pretty much always, is we try to put together a bit of a broad stroke historical context. So, Lee, this happened December 9th, 1965. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about 1965 that's important to know before we even start?
1: I would... Okay, so we're in the United States, we're in Canada, uh, so that means... So you have to locate it geographically too, I guess, in the sense to know what's happening uh, at that time. We're in the Cold War. We brought that up in every single episode we've done. So... Uh, the United States and to a lesser extent Canada is involved in an arms race. Uh, there is a big public number one political enemy in the Soviet Union and the communists generally, the communist bloc we're generally afraid of them. There's the space race. There's uh, counterculture in the United States, the hippies and, you know, rock music and things like that. There is uh, the Vietnam War which people are very frustrated about, uh, very angry about. So it's a politically uh, tumultuous time. It's a rich time. It's an interesting time uh, for us also as researchers to study. But it's a time, I think, that as analysts we can look back on and see that there's a certain amount of social anxiety, even if one or another person might not have themselves felt it. As a culture, the United States, North America, is a bit fearful while at the same time being quite proud of its successes.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent description of the historical context. And I think one of the things about that description you gave that was was so good is that I think that while you were making it, it became clear why it's important to situate things historically and in space. Because as you said, this was the Cold War, and so that immediately brings up this this sort of filter that you have to see everything through. Mm. It was this massive conflict of ideologies between these two massive uh, superpowers. The fact that the space race was going on is important. Another thing that I would point out is that in 1965, we had had the UFO phenomenon for about 15 years. Mm -hmm. So people were familiar with the idea of the UFO by 1965.
1: Right. Yeah, no, that becomes incredibly relevant for what we're about to talk about.
0: Yeah, because this is what happened. Now that we've got the historical context, let's talk about what we do know. Well, at quarter to five in the afternoon... December 9th, 1965, a giant fireball streaks through the sky. It can be seen from the ground in Ontario, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Over 150 people report sighting the fireball. It only lasted for about three to four seconds. If you're wondering why so few people would have reported something so strange, it's because it didn't last very long in the sky. Mm. But also people reported hearing loud sonic booms uh, throughout the Detroit-Windsor area. Now, a sonic boom is a shockwave that occurs any time an object goes faster than the speed of sound. Also, there was a dust trail left behind that lasted for over 30 minutes. Uh, it was photographed, and I've seen those photographs. And uh, geophysics, a geophysics laboratory at the University of Michigan recorded, recorded a shock event on the seismograph when those sonic booms occurred.
1: Now, why is it that you feel confident? Since we're we're this is a how to make the sausage episode, why is it that Gross. you feel I, I'm sorry <laughs> confident in, in in stating that these were indeed the facts?
0: Well, one of the things that we do, of course, is we go back to the newspapers at the time and we see what was reported at the time. Now, things like this, where you have people like reporting this to local media and to local authorities, that leaves a paper trail. Uh, the geophysics laboratory at the University of Michigan, they issued an official report all of these things were officially sort of presented and all these things were officially recorded. And at the same time, none of these things seem so far-fetched that Mm -hmm. we would consider them suspicious.
1: Mm -hmm. I think, picking up on Nathan's point, what's really important is the notion of independent sources corroborating the event. And I, I, I feel like I've said this before on this podcast, but this is an example I'd like to give where there are some characters, historical characters, we're not sure if they really existed. There's uh, Socrates in the philosophical tradition. There's Jesus in the religious tradition. So there's some of these characters, and we're not sure if they just weren't maybe made up. On the other hand, there are some historical figures where we have absolutely no doubt that they existed.
0: You're Alexander the Greats, or exactly. your Napoleons, exactly. or Exactly, You're Cleopatras. Yeah,
1: and, and the question is, well, how come? How come you know that Alexander the Great existed, but we're not sure if Jesus or uh, Socrates did? And the answer is, independent sources. Um, While Jesus' followers might write a lot about Jesus, or Socrates' followers might write a lot about him, a lot of people who did not like or care or know much about Alexander the Great were writing about him. People in Egypt, people in Persia, people who were being, you know, overrun by this guy. And... It's not then just people, quote unquote, on the inside. These are independent sources. So you cited, I think, the meteorological.
0: There was a geophysics laboratory at the University of Michigan. Yes. There was.
1: So what did they have to do with the, you know, the newspapers or the independent observers living in southern Ontario? You know, these are different sources for information. If it had just been one of them, I might get skeptical.
0: Yeah, if one person says, hey, I saw something in the sky, you think, well, it's possible you did. Mm -hmm. But if a bunch of people who don't know each other all see the same thing in the sky, and it's recorded independently by a number of different uh, organizations, then all of a sudden we have to say, yeah, this seems to be something that genuinely happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, We go to contemporary news uh, sources. At the 9 o'clock radio news uh, reported that many persons in the Greenberg area saw the phenomena. State police say there is a fire in the Kecksburg area. The next day, in the newspaper, the Greensburg Tribune Review, the headline was, Unidentified Flying Object Falls Near Kecksburg, Army Ropes-Off Area.
1: Mm -hmm. And interestingly, that's all true, right? Because we've had that episode on UFOs, and UFOs are simply unidentified flying objects. So until an asteroid gets, or meteorite gets noted as that, it's unidentified. Yeah, so
0: it was definitely a UFO.
1: It was a UFO, and then the army came and cordoned off the area.
0: Oh, and if we wanted any more evidence, uh, also the Federal Aviation Administration reported that 23 airline pilots had seen something in the air at that moment. Okay.
1: So something happened, it seems like.
0: Something definitely happened. So why don't we start off with the official story? Okay. Spokesman for the Department of Defense says, well, you're going to be relieved about this. It's a weather balloon. It was not a weather (laughs) balloon. (laughs) I find that uh, very refreshing. There was not a weather balloon. It was a meteor. They said it burned up in the atmosphere and nothing landed. Uh, Project Blue Book, of course, which is something that we've talked about in great length before in another episode. Uh, the official Project Blue Book report. And very quickly, Project Blue Book is or was what?
1: Well, it, it was an army investigation into what flying, uh, unidentified flying objects actually were. And while it was being run by Captain Ruppelt, it was a really amazing outfit that did really good independent analysis that I would consider very rigorous.
0: Yeah, me too. I I think that the Ruppelt era of Project Blue Book is a fantastic source. This is uh, something that we've mentioned a lot. Uh, His book, uh, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, is fantastic. It's an amazing read and just the the rigor that he conducted his investigations and the honesty Mm -hmm. is inspiring and useful. Unfortunately, Ruppelt leaves in 1953 And then what happens to Blue Book after that?
1: It really gets turned into just a really crummy outfit that tries to just dismiss all sightings out of hand. Yeah, Coming up with silly explanations for things that don't work, like Venus, weather balloons, and meteors.
0: Yeah, all those classic kind of cover-up style explanations, that starts to be what happens. Whereas Ruppelt, he wasn't trying to prove that there were aliens— He also wasn't trying to prove that there weren't aliens. Mm -hmm. He was just following the evidence to try to figure out what was actually going on. So the fact that the Project Blue Book report says nothing was found, I give that no credence at all. Yeah. Uh, And now, because of this, in the lack of any kind of credible evidence that it was definitely a meteor, that leaves all sorts of space for speculation. And the speculation on this event is amazing. And what I did was, I, as we always do... I would try to follow each individual bit of speculation Mm -hmm. down down its path and try to research that area and then look at the validity of these claims and the accuracy of them. And I found that every time I went down one of these speculative trails, I ended up with all sorts of amazing, fascinating information, but it led me further away from Kecksburg, Mm -hmm. not towards Kecksburg. So why don't we start with... My favorite one. Well, can I just
1: interrupt and ask why is it that we are sure it's not a meteor? Because it sounds like a fireball screaming across the sky, a couple of uh, sonic booms, you know, this classic meteor, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, for sure. And meteors, I, you've probably seen shooting stars. Yep. Yeah. They're pretty neat. Because of eyewitness accounts. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a couple reasons why I would argue that it seems unlikely that it's a meteor. Okay. Some of the things that we know because of the media reports at the time, for one thing, the army shows up almost immediately. Hmm. If it was a meteor, there'd be almost no warning about it. Right. And then somehow the army is able to show up less than an hour after it lands. Hmm. Like it would take longer to mobilize the people, get the trucks together. Even if it happened near a base, it's still going to take longer than an hour. So clearly the army was prepared for something before it landed. Okay. So there's one reason. Another reason is we have a lot of eyewitness accounts, a lot of independent eyewitness accounts of people who came forward on the record with their name. And I'll look at some of those eyewitness accounts now. And again, these are people who would normally be considered to be reasonable eyewitnesses. For example, the state police fire marshal, a guy called Carl Metz, he said that he saw something on the ground in Kecksburg, something he had never seen before. He was ordered not to talk about it. Hmm. Uh, a lot of local residents, there's one guy called Bill uh, Bullabush, uh, he said he saw something on the ground that looked acorn-shaped, but the size of a Volkswagen. He also said that as it was falling, it appeared to slow in the air and have a semi-controlled entry. <laughs> there was another local resident called uh, Randy Overly, who also claimed to see a Volkswagen-sized acorn-shaped uh, object. Uh, a fireman named Bob Bittner, who saw the convoy of military trucks come in. There was a local resident called Mac- Mike Slater, who again saw a military flatbed truck showing up empty and leaving with something under a tarp. Uh, And also Slater claims he was told by army officials to give false directions to anybody who asked where the crash was. Okay. Uh, Finally, we have a guy called Jerry Betters. And I mean, I could go on and on about this. Right, right, right. Who was told to leave at gunpoint after he caught a glimpse of, again, an acorn-shaped object. Okay.
1: So at least this will give us enough to go on to suggest that something's going on. It could still be a meteor, but, you know, this is maybe one of the times when we start to look a bit more deeply into an event.
0: for sure. I mean, the combination of all of the people having very similar uh, experiences as far as what they saw, the fact that the army did show up so quickly, all of these things make it very suspicious to me that it was a meteor.
1: Okay, so I interrupted you when you were about to get into the theories of what it could be, and I see that in your bunker, you've posted all kinds of... Uh, World War II-ish type of objects uh, from Germany, mostly.
0: Um, so excited. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because I'm going to have to talk about <laughs> it. This is Nathan's happy now. place.
1: Oh, boy. Okay, so what are the theories? What was this acorn-shaped object that came uh, screaming out of the sky in 1965?
0: Okay, one of the things that I came across, as far as speculation goes, was that this object was actually... A kind of, and now I'm going to ask you to use your German skills. It could have been an example of... Wunderwaffen. Okay, so what does Wunderwaffen mean?
1: Wunder is wonder or amazing or spectacular. And Waffe is weapon. So it's like the amazing weapon, the wonderful, weird weapon.
0: German's amazing. Now, (laughs) the Wunderwaffen, these were weapons that were designed during World War II. Because... Adolf Hitler, of course, convinced that some kind of miraculous superweapon was going to be the answer to all of Germany's problems, Mm -hmm. and they devoted a lot of time to basically what we would call mad science. Yeah. And this is something we've talked about before when we talk about things like Paperclip, Mm -hmm. uh, the project through which Nazi scientists were funneled into America and given new Mm paths. And there were some examples of actual Wunderwaffen, and we'll get to those in a second, but... On the internet, the speculation seems to be that what actually landed was something called the Glocke, which means what? The bell. The bell. Yeah. And if you describe what I'm pointing at, what does it look like? It looks like the top of a lighthouse. Or
1: one of those diving bells, if you know from oh, yeah. back way back in the, in olden, the, days. the olden days, where uh, you would stick somebody or something underneath and they would have their own oxygen for a little bit. It just looks like a metallic cylindrical object with a kind of a cap on top and, of course, lots of swastikas.
0: Yeah, of course, unfortunately, uh, which is why I'm going to take that down off my wall right. almost <laughs> immediately after we finish this <laughs> podcast. And it kind of maybe looks a little bit like a big metal acorn. It does, yeah. Okay, so what the Glocka was supposed to have been? It, the idea was that in Poland, there was discovered this sort of strange thing. It kind of looked like a metal stonehenge. And the official argument was that this was a frame for a cooling tower that was supporting a nearby coal mine. Hmm. But there were some speculative writers who argued that perhaps this weird metal frame out in the middle of Poland was not designed to hold up a water tower, but was instead part of this top secret experiment to create Deglaca, which was actually either a time travel device or an anti-gravity device. Huh. Already, I've got issues with this. Because if you're telling me it was either time travel or anti-gravity, it seems to me that you don't have a lot of evidence leaning one way or the other.
1: No, and especially with stuff like time travel... And this is, uh, we're going to get into this later, the Occam's razor principle that we so often apply. Uh, Look, all—and if you've ever listened to the podcast before, you know that we're no physicists. But I do have some rudimentary understanding of physics. And again, it's the principles that underlie what we consider to be true and not true. According to modern physics as it stands, time travel in this kind of science fiction way where you can go backwards or forwards outside of the regular flow of time is impossible. It can't be done.
0: It's theoretically possible to travel through time, but you would basically need an infinite amount of energy because the closer you get to the speed of light, the more energy right. is required because that energy starts to become mass.
1: And since you don't have and it, I think it's I think it is actually and now we're getting really into the weeds of stuff we don't know, my understanding is it is actually technically impossible for that reason. Mm-hmm. We're saying the same thing either way. This is highly speculative stuff.
0: Now, and this is also certainly not one of our stronger areas, quantum physics and relativity right. and things like that. <laughs> but luckily, I think there's another way for us to maybe dismiss this idea, and it's more of a historical way. Okay. First of all, I would say that I find no reference to Diglaka until the year 2000. Okay. And that's, that's a pretty long time to go without referencing something that was supposed to have been out in 1943, mm-hmm, 1944. Mm-hmm. The, the scholarship on Die Glocke is extremely speculative. Like, even to say it's speculative is kind of generous. Right. It's just sort of flailing around. There doesn't seem to be any hard evidence for it at all. There's a lot of sketches, there's a lot of drawings, there's a lot of guesses. Uh, the other thing, too, is we can say, this was a long time ago. This would have been the 1940s. And so you would think that if there was something invented along that line back then, we would see some effects of that now. Mm-hmm. Because so many of the secret weapons that were being developed back then, we now see the results of. Mm -hmm. And finally, and this is crucial, if you had a time machine, would you have lost the war?
1: Good point. Good point. There is sometimes just the internal logic that will kill an argument. Yeah. Even if you accept all its premises, it still doesn't make
0: any sense. Now, if it's an anti-gravity device, it's hard to say how an anti-gravity device would have been a useful weapon that was any more useful than fighter planes, bombers, that kind of thing.
1: I understand what we mean by time travel. I don't understand what we mean by an anti-gravity device. I mean, I, an airplane?
0: Well, I mean, a, an airplane doesn't... <laughs> still works with gravity, Yeah, it right? still has gravity as one of the forces operating on it, so you need the lift of the wings. Uh, I think the idea of an anti-gravity device, it, it could just sort of hover using maybe electromagnetism or some kind of unseen, un-understood un- force that could simply allow to overcome gravity. But ultimately I was fascinated by reading about Diglaka, mm. but it seemed more of a, a science fiction exercise than it yeah. did anything that had anything to do with the actual history.
1: Can I interject here as well, and I know I'm being a bit tedious about the sources and how we know stuff, but there is also a big distinction between scholarship and scholarship. I mean, there's True. some scholarship that is very well documented. It has a lot of support. It's published in rigorous journals, which means it goes through a lot more of the peer review selection process, double blind, other people looking at it, trying out the premises or conclusions that are stated in that. And then there's other quote unquote scholarship that looks very professional, but is borderline charlatanry.
0: Yeah. I mean it's people just people just sort of saying whatever and then yeah. publishing whatever. Now, of course, that peer review process is not perfect. Oh no. And stuff often sneaks through.
1: Yeah, like the anti-vaxer guy.
0: Yeah, Andrew Wakefield would be one Andrew example. Wakefield
1: published in a leading medical journal a what amounted to be a complete conspiracy theory and it got published and people believed it. Yeah. So it happens that you you know get so fooled.
0: It, so it's not perfect but it's it's better. It's a good guideline. Yeah. And uh, all of the scholarship that I found on Die Glocke does not meet that, 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 that higher level, that of scholarship. Higher level bar, yeah. bar of scholarship. But what did happen, as I'm looking into this, then I got distracted. <laughs> because then I th- started wondering, well, what were some of the Wunderwaffen? Uh, and of course, some of them we had come across before. Uh, the V2.
1: Right, okay, that's the rocket that first made it into space, right? Yeah. Accidentally, but nonetheless.
0: Exactly, and that was actually a fairly significant weapon and a fairly important weapon that was fairly effective. Uh, the V-1, which was an earlier version, kind of looked like a like a cruise missile. Right. And again, was able to shoot London from, uh, from France, and so these were reasonably effective weapons.
1: And this is why the Allied powers were so interested in German uh, scientists after the fall of the Nazi regime, is that they were actually producing, you know, top-of-the-line weaponry that other nations like the United States, Great Britain, even the Soviet Union wanted to get their hands on.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, The Messerschmitt 262 Mm -hmm. was one of the first effective jet fighters. Uh, The Messerschmitt 163, Hmm. a wildly ineffective rocket fighter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I wanna get into some like really weird experimental stuff that that was on the drawing boards. Like okay. this is legitimate stuff, right. but it was never put into practice. How would you say this whole thing?
1: Uh Sombold 344 Schussjäger.
0: Okay, so that one was it was an attempt to try to bring down a lot of Allied bombers at once. The idea is that you would take this sort of odd, weird-looking it looks sort of like a plane with a great big fake nose.
1: Yeah, and a, and like a submarine. It has a submarineish quality. Is, is, is that where... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm pointing at the picture
0: now. Very helpful for right. podcast listeners.
1: <laughs> it seems as though by the tail there, is that like a cabin for people to sit in?
0: Yeah, it, it looks like sort of a, a tube. It, if you took a submarine and you chopped a half... The pack half off. I'm sorry. And then you put stubby little wings on it, and then you put a great big fake like clown nose on it. That's sort of what this thing looks like. And
1: then painted it with leopard spots.
0: And then painted it with leopard spots. (laughs) We might have to put some pictures of this up. Yeah, I
1: think so. All
0: right, so the idea of that is that that plane itself would not take off normally, but it would be carried by another plane. Up high in the air, you would fly over the Allied bombers, and then you would drop that plane in amongst those Allied bombers, whereupon a rocket engine would fire, and then when it got close to the Allied bombers, the nose would fall off, and the nose would be a giant bomb. Ah. And then that giant bomb would go off once it was in the middle of all those Allied bombers, and I the see. idea they would be damaged, and they would come down, okay. and that theoretically maybe the pilot of the Schussjager would be able to survive. Okay, So bonkers, ridiculous. Very elaborate. Very elaborate, like bizarre. But here's the other thing. There's nothing about that plane... That goes against what we know as far as the abilities of German scientists at that time.
1: Yeah, it it, it conforms to what we understand about physics, too. Yeah, I mean, it, there's yeah, no exactly. claims here that it's unlikely, but certainly not impossible.
0: Yeah, I mean, rocket power, uh, like all of these things were happening at the time. Yeah, So as sure. weird as it is, now this one's even weirder. How would you say this?
1: Okay, so I think the first part is just the name of it, or the name of the designer, Fokker Wolf. Yep. Uh, and then Triebflügeljäger. Uh, now, we heard that Jäger uh, in the last one too, Schussjäger. Jäger just means hunter. And Triebflügel is turbine wing. So it would be, the full name would be the focke Wolf Turbine Wing Hunter.
0: Amazing. I'm going to try and fail to describe this thing. Okay, so what I want you to imagine at home is you take a normal airplane, then you cut off the wings, and then you stand it up so it's on its tail vertical. Now, imagine it has a propeller in the nose. Now, what I want you to do, now that you have that vertical plane with no wings standing on its tail, I want you to imagine like sliding a ring down a finger. I want you to (laughs) slide the propeller down the plane until instead of being in the nose the propeller is sort of halfway down the plane. Now, I want you to take the three blades of that propeller and make them the size of wings. Each of those three blades is now the size of a wing. And at the ends of those giant propeller wings, I want you to put a little rocket engine, not pointing backwards as you would expect, but pointing off to the side.
1: I'm so glad I have a picture. Because, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: that's... This is... You know what it looks like? It reminds me a little bit of a ceiling fan.
0: Uh, that's that's with, not bad.
1: Yeah, with something like attached to a cylindrical object.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good.
1: It's a ceiling fan. One of those like 1950s hyper-modern ceiling fans or 1960s modernist ceiling fan things. Yeah, that's, century that's more modern. helpful.
0: It's like, it's like a cigar with a ceiling there fan in go. the middle of it. There you go. We're and a pilot in the front. Yeah. And so what this was designed to do is it was supposed to take off straight up in the air like a rocket. The rockets on the tips of each of the three giant propeller blades were facing sideways so that they would blow the... The the contraption about? So it would basically... (laughs) Spin like a ceiling fan? Spin like a ceiling fan or a Uh helicopter, and then it would fly up into the air.
1: How does the pilot not get... I mean, are they, they, they can't be spun around.
0: No, the pilot doesn't get spun around. Like, the propeller is on a ring, and that ring moves oh, freely. And then the, the pilot's compartment stays, because otherwise... It would be an awful... Worst, worst flight ever. Yeah. <laughs> Still the worst flight ever, because looking at this thing now, how would you imagine it would land?
1: Hmm. Good point. I, I mean, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I, uh, I can't imagine it landing.
0: It was supposed to go backwards and then gently land back on its tail standing straight up. Oh, yeah, that's going to happen. It wouldn't work. I mean, ridiculous idea, but they were trying to do it. But again, it doesn't go against what we know about the laws of physics. It doesn't go against what we know about the work that was being done in Germany. Okay.
1: Now, why would it have to be the Germans? I mean, why couldn't this have been something the Canadians or the Americans were working on?
0: Well, I think... I mean, that's a good question. Part of it is that in World War II the German scientists were just more advanced as far as some of these absurd kinds of weapons than the other countries. The Americans didn't spend that much time thinking about really ridiculous weapons. The British were going to make a giant aircraft carrier out of ice, Oh I which is thought, pretty weird.
1: Right, right. I remember that. I heard that.
0: And the, uh, the Americans were working with them on that. And, of course, the main weapon that the Americans were curious about was the atomic bomb, right. which was genuinely a war-ending mm-hmm. device. There were strange weapons being made, but there's no evidence that de mm-hmm. was being made. Okay. And so this is sort of the path that I went down, and then I looked at all these ridiculous planes, and I had myself a really good day. Right. <laughs> but in the end, because of historical reasons, because of physics reasons, I came to the conclusion that it seems unlikely that this weird acorn that fell in keksberg was de oh. And in the end, I decided it seems unlikely de even existed.
1: So I, I think, again... in as a matter of making this stuff apparent about how our decisions proceed, you did take this seriously, right? Of course. I mean, that was one of the theories out there. And instead of just dismissing it out of hand, okay, let's take a look. Who were the people working on this potential time-traveling anti-gravity device? What was it supposed to do? You know, how is it supposed to work? Uh, What would be the consequences if they had had it? So it's not as though we do entertain, I should say like this, we do entertain quite unusual theories until we can demonstrate that they're really unlikely to the point where it's probably not going to be an explanation.
0: Yeah, because how many times have we come across an unusual theory and then thought, oh, no, that one's, that one's true. Yeah, it does happen. I mean, the, the classic example, of course, as always.
1: Oh, my God, there's so many at this point. I mean, MK Ultra is the big one. But then, I mean, oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah, we've come across some weird stuff.
1: Stargate? Star, like, you yep. guys are Stargate actually the, doing that?
0: Yeah, Stargate's the goofiest thing I ever came across, <laughs> and, it was, and it was real. And it was real. So something being ridiculous doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't accurate. That's right. So okay. we, we got to look into the ridiculous. Mm-hmm. In this case, I think Die glock is ridiculous and also not particularly accurate. Right. But Wunderwaffen was interesting to read about. All right, so another possibility. Something crashed. What if it was a Soviet satellite?
1: Right. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I mean... The Soviets have been in space since the, what, early 50s, I think?
0: And they had been sending... I mean, they had sent uh, Sputnik, was the late 50s. Yeah, oh, then... Okay, so I mean stuff had the gone, late 50s.
1: Uh, stuff had gone up. They put in Sputnik. They had gotten Gagarin up there. Uh, Laika, the first dog.
0: stroka and Belka. There you go. The other so dogs.
1: They're... They are throwing stuff up there and, you know, all, some of that stuff will come down at some point.
0: Exactly. And so I looked into that speculation and I came across something called Project Moondust. Okay. Great name. Yep. Now, Project Moondust was a U.S. Air Force project and its purpose was to retrieve fallen space vehicles. <laughs> I then went through and looked at all sorts of redacted files from uh, Project Moondust which were a lot of communiques between different people who were within that project, talking about various crashes and and things like that. Uh, So, for example, in November 1973, an object fell near the Ivory Coast that had Russian lettering on it. And the Americans were extremely excited about this, although they told their operative on the ground, quote, "...you should avoid giving the impression that the U.S. places high value on acquiring object or firm commitment, re-extent, or nature of test report." So they were super excited of it, but they didn't want to appear that excited. Right. Because then probably the price would go up.
1: Sure. Yeah, you don't want to tip anybody off that you actually want the thing you want.
0: Exactly. Yeah. They were also, in this report, extremely excited because the Ivory Coast hadn't signed the Return of Astronauts and Objects Agreement. So they said, this is great because that means that the Ivory Coast isn't obligated to notify the UN Secretary General or the launching state. Okay. So this was a fantastic place for something Russian to have crashed yeah. for the Americans. In December 1976, there was a possible space object found in Windsor, Ontario, which they then decided was probably an old melted down automobile transmission part. Oh. Not as exciting. But in 1972, and this is where I became suspicious that I was falling for an elaborate hoax. Oh, yeah? Because in 1972, I read a report about two small space fragments found in a farmer's field in New Zealand, and they were known as space balls. And so there was all this stuff about the space balls and like the shape of the space balls and the size of space (laughs) balls. And I was like, wait, this is a bit ridiculous now. Like, has this all been an elaborate hoax? Yeah. No, it was just ridiculous reality.
1: Okay. But you know, that in and of itself is always a good question, right? Just to be slightly skeptical, even of the stuff that you're enjoying reading and engaging in.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. Now, the space balls, this part I actually got a bit confused by, and this was my whole day, just these space balls. Because the official report said that they it was a hoax and that they were nothing more than altered fishing floats. Hmm. But I found another document that came out a little bit later that argued that at the same time that was happening, and this is still from Project Moondust, a cylindrical object had been found in the same area in New Zealand two feet long, seven inches in diameter that had been extensively scarred by heat and an explosion. And the findings of Project Moondust was that this object was perhaps related to the space balls. Hmm. And so there's a bit of a contradiction there, and that's why basically I spent my whole day on it.
1: So have we solved it? I mean, is the the acorn-shaped object that hit uh, northern United States, a piece of Soviet
0: space junk? Well, then I started looking into Soviet space junk. Yeah. And then I got off onto some other ridiculous items. For example, the early Vostok capsules. Vostok was the, the earliest manned uh, Soviet space program uh, capsules. They contained each 10 kilograms of explosives. Oh. When they were sent up into space, they had explosives in them. The reason is you could detonate those by remote control if it looked like maybe it was going to come back to Earth. Okay in the United States right. or uh, country-friendly to the United States. Okay. Now, even if you didn't detonate it by remote control, because that wouldn't have been necessarily very reliable, they had a time bomb in them so that 64 hours after landing, the charge would go off. I see. Because you don't want enemy scientists looking into your stuff. And if they know, hey, these things are going to blow up on us, right. maybe you mind your own business. But then that led me to this story, which had nothing to do with Kecksburg. March of 1960, they were launching a dog into space. It came down in the wrong spot. It came down in a place called uh, Tunguska in Siberia. And the scientists realized, oh, no, that dog is going to blow up. Ah. It's going to blow up in 64 hours. Okay. Now, you would think this was the Cold War. Like, so many people had been killed at this point in various experiments. It's like, well, who cares if the dog blows up? But these scientists decided... We're not letting that dog blow up. Oh, I like them. So the That's K- sweet. It, it is. It gets sort of sweeter, I guess. KGB officers were dispatched to find time bomb experts nearby. And they found a bunch drunk at a party. And they grabbed them. And they threw them on a plane. And they, put that, they sent that plane to Siberia. And then they were able to track down the, the capsule and they were able to deactivate the bomb, and they saved the dog.
1: Nice! Yeah. That is one of the very few good news stories that we have ever broadcast. Yeah, on that's,
0: the... that's why I thought. Even though it's nothing to do with Kecksburg, I've got to find a place to tell uh, that story. Oh,
1: that's, that's heartwarming.
0: So was it a, uh, a Soviet satellite? Well, interestingly, and this is one thing that we always bump into, we bump into the problem of coincidence. And coincidence is like the enemy of, uh, of the truth, in a way. Because we hate coincidence so much we are often very quick to reject it as a possibility. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a satellite called the Cosmos 96, which I have a picture of, up on the wall. Yep. Uh, so what does that look like? It, you know, it's the
1: weirdest little image. From where I'm sitting, it looks like a uh, cat bowl full of water with cute little kitties in it. But really, uh, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's what? A sol- again, it's a cylindrical-shaped object. With CCCP stamped on the side of it. Yeah. And it's the Cosmos 96.
0: Yeah. And it was like, uh, it was a little satellite that they were trying to send around Venus. And actually, the Cosmos 96, uh, one of the Cosmos 96s, crashed in Canada December 9th, 1965. Yeah. So it seems like, okay, well, that's that then. Yeah. Uh, What else could it be? What are the chances that two things would crash? What
1: are the chances?
0: The problem is, even though this is, the, uh, this is the official claim by NASA, in December 2005, NASA released a statement that said, yes, what crashed in Kexburg was a Soviet satellite. Uh, when asked for proof, they said, well, we lost the files. Okay. Like, uh, okay, I mean, that's not great, but of course files do get lost.
1: Yeah, I almost believe it.
0: Yeah, because we are clumsy. But the problem is, when we look to see the records of when the Cosmos 96 did crash that day. It was at least four or five hours too early to have been the Kecksburg crash. Mm. So what I am forced to come to the conclusion to is it was a coincidence.
1: So this is something that I often hear when I hear people justifying certain conspiracies. They'll lead with, well, it couldn't have been a coincidence. Simply Mm -hmm. couldn't have been. I've looked into this a bit. What is, you know, what is a coincidence? What, what is the nature of probability? And often, it turns out that our gut reaction to what is and isn't a coincidence is actually quite wrong. It comes up so often that, oh, here's, a, here's an example. What is the likelihood that someone will win the next lottery? Well, usually when I ask people that question, I'll get something like, oh, it's one out of a million or whatever. But the trick here is that I've asked, what is the likelihood that someone of will course. win the next lottery, not that you will win the next lottery or any specific player. If it's one out of a million, just say, for argument's sake, and there's two million people who are playing the lottery, the likelihood that there's going to be uh, if, uh, w- at least one winner approaches 100%. Now, from the perspective of the person who wins, it's unbelievable. It's such a you know coincidence or act of fate or something But from another perspective, it had to happen. Yeah. It had to happen. Now, you can do the same thing. What's the likelihood that somebody with a rare disease but has two different rare diseases would walk into a doctor's office? You say, well, that can't be a coincidence. That's just astronomically unlikely. But, you know, there's 400 million or 300 million uh, citizens in the United States. There's 7 billion of us on the planet. If, if these diseases are one in a million or one in a hundred thousand, the likelihood that somebody's got two or three is very high. There's going to be thousands probably.
0: Yeah, in the same way that there are people who have won the lottery more than once.
1: Yeah. So the fact that it, there might have been two unidentified objects falling out of the sky within a couple of days of each other in roughly the same area is maybe not that much of a coincidence.
0: Yeah, it's frustrating.
1: I know, and it's not a nice explanation. Yeah, we don't like it. it always, I don't like it. No, but. it's always very unsatisfying to have coincidence uh, come into the mix.
0: But ultimately, the numbers just don't add up. And in fact, in 2018, NASA came out and said, well, actually, the Cosmos 96 had crashed earlier that day. The approach vector was too steep to have been a decaying orbit uh, orbital satellite. But then they went back to saying, so therefore, it was probably a meteor. Hmm. And again, we've already dismissed the meteor because of the eyewitness accounts and uh, because, again, of the response time of the army.
1: Could it have been... huh? I, here's what I'm thinking. I'm getting excited now to try and solve this puzzle. Could it be that the eyewitness reports saw the meteor? That which, so which one crashes first? It's the...
0: The uh, Cosmos 96 Soviet satellite okay. crashed earlier in the day.
1: So what if the army is responding to that? Because they know what's up. And then later what people see is the meteor. And in in subsequent historical understanding of it, or, or or renditions of it, these two separate events have somehow become conflated.
0: Oh yeah, because that kind of conflation is something that happens all of the time. Uh, it, because I mean, these stories they they mutate and they change right. and they become sort of they they become organisms in in of themselves and take on a whole life. Uh-huh. So that sort of stuff does happen. Uh, so that is entirely possible. But it still wouldn't help us to understand all of the eyewitness accounts that claim they saw a, like a Volkswagen-sized acorn. Right. Okay. So now we get to another possibility. Was it aliens? Yes. And I mean, as in, yes. Yes, it I, was. Uh, yes, I'm on board. Yes, it was aliens. Thank you. i It's aliens. <laughs> and of course, this is why this is such an interesting idea, because anytime something comes from the sky and there seems yeah. to be a bit of a cover-up, we have to ask this question. Okay, were there aliens?
1: And also because uh, some other folks who do the kind of debunking that we sometimes engage in will dismiss arguments like aliens right out of hand, and they quite rightly then are subjected to others saying, "Well, you know, why is that not part of this discussion? Why are you not taking aliens seriously?" And I think we always try that. We always try and take this argument seriously as well. Yeah, Yeah.
0: it could be aliens. Well, I mean, you and I and Elena all believe in the existence of aliens. And UFOs. And UFOs. But, as you often say, (laughs) you are not convinced that the UFOs are aliens. That's right. You know aliens exist, you know UFOs exist, but you don't know if they're the same thing. Yeah. Now, I was unable to find any evidence about aliens, uh, and so this was sort of like just a dead end. Mm. At this point, there was no eyewitness accounts that said... Uh, described anything that was clearly otherworldly. Mm. Uh, they a lot of people said that they didn't understand what they were looking at, but it still seemed to be in the realm of things that humans could have created. okay. And there was no discussion about alien bodies or or any kind of strange effects of the people of Act afterwards. There was no uh, radiation found, nothing like that. And so while we didn't s- just throw out the idea that it could have been aliens, we also saw no evidence that there were aliens. Mm-hmm. And so the burden of proof principle mm-hmm. is any claim that is made, that is made without any evidence, can then be dismissed without any evidence. Okay. And so unfortunately, as much as I would love to turn this into an alien episode, there was just no evidence for it, and so we simply had to move on.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: We come to uh, the last of the speculation. One of the many things that would have been whizzing around in space back then uh, was something called the General Electric Mark II re-entry vehicle. And it was designed in the late 1950s as a capsule to place a nuclear warhead in, in a ballistic missile. I see. Because the thing is, a ballistic missile goes way up into space, and then as it comes down, of course, it's going to encounter the atmosphere again, and it's going to be subjected to tremendous pressure and tremendous heat from Mm. the re-entry into the atmosphere. The question was, how do you keep a nuclear warhead from being destroyed on the way to the city it's supposed to destroy? And so what General Electric did was they came up with this kind of... Uh, a little protective pod that would be in the tip of the ballistic missile. And then as a ballistic missile was coming down onto its city, that pod would pop out, it would have the warhead in it, and then that pod would safely bring that warhead down to Earth. Okay. Now, a couple interesting things about this. One, I have a photograph of it. What does it look like to you?
1: It looks like, yeah, it looks like an acorn.
0: It looks like an acorn. No. Yeah, and it's about the size of a Volkswagen. Yep couple other interesting things about this. It has small thrusters that are used to slow the descent uh, when it's landing, okay. which could explain some of those eyewitness accounts mm-hmm. that they saw it sort of maneuvering almost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It has a lot of copper in it, which could explain the the green light that people saw that was given off. And it could also have been filled with, uh, or it also could have been fitted with a recoverable data capsule system instead of a warhead. Which means that this was a satellite that could have been used for spying. Ah, uh, so and th-
1: the Americans would have uh, maybe known that this was coming down.
0: Yeah, because it was their satellite, and so they would have known it was coming down. They could have been prepared for it. Right. So then the question becomes, which of all of these is the most likely? Mm-hmm. And in the end, what I landed on—no unintended—was this General <laughs> Electric Mark II reentry vehicle.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
0: It fits in with the historical context. Yep. It fits in with the eyewitness accounts. Mm-hmm. It fits in with, uh, because I didn't even mention, I've also been reading like scientific accounts at the time, mm-hmm. uh, this, the scientific work about the fireball of December 9th, and uh, like the uh, observations made by astronomers. Mm-hmm. This does fit in with all of those. But there's one last thing that we have to look at, that uh, that I came across when I was studying. Now, there's a photograph in front of you. Yeah. Could you describe that photograph?
1: So it's a color photograph that contains two trucks. Uh, I think they're flatbed trucks. One looks like an army truck. But right in the middle is what looks like a golden uh, acorn.
0: Yeah, with like weird hieroglyphics on it or something.
1: That I can't make out, but I'll take your word for it.
0: Now, I came across this photograph as an example of a picture of the Kexberg UFO. And when you look at this thing, it seems alien. Yep. And yeah. so... It does
1: not I, seem, let's put it like this, it does not seem like the tip of a, uh, of a missile.
0: No, no, in no way. It, it looks strange and organic and alien. And this was a photograph that was presented and people were saying, well, here is evidence.
1: So uh, is this something, uh, listeners, if they were to Google... Uh, uh, what's it? Kexburg
0: Kecks- UFO. Kecksburg UFO. They would find this picture. This
1: picture would show
0: up. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was curious because this picture doesn't look like a Mark II, uh, General Electric Mark II reentry vehicle. I mean, maybe a the little bit. The kind of
1: things Nathan knows. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I need to just do an airplane podcast eventually. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, so where is this from? And then I looked at it carefully and I thought, this looks really familiar. Okay. Where have I seen this before? And then I realized... I'd seen this, this acorn in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries because in 1990, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries did an episode on Kecksburg. Oh. And in order to film it, they built a prop, a giant space acorn, which they then left in the town. And then the town put up on a big pole so that tourists could come by and look at it.
1: Interesting. So this is actually a movie prop.
0: Yes, this is not a photograph of the army taking away some kind of space probe. This is a photograph of Unsolved Mysteries bringing a prop to Kexburg.
1: And it's also the power of, again, coming back to this horse that I keep beating, uh, the power of sources and checking your sources. Because this will be, I mean, if it's the thing that you can Google and it's one of the first images that come up, you could use this as proof.
0: Yeah, right? we, we believe what we see. Of course. And this looks like a photograph. And wh- I mean,
1: who's going to find out what... The, I mean, the, the fact that you had seen that episode and you remember it from the 90s and then you put the pieces together, you were able to debunk this, but I could imagine it being quite difficult if you hadn't been tipped off.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. Now, and this also brings up an interesting point about Kecksburg itself. I was thinking of maybe driving down there because it's a tiny little place that has a fire department. That fire department is paid for in part... Buy a little store, and that little store is devoted to selling souvenirs of the Kecksburg UFO crash.
1: Okay, field trip.
0: Yeah, I think I mean, it's not <laughs> that far, it's only about five hours away. And so I have a quote here that maybe we'll end with uh, after all the work we put into this. Yeah. Here is a quote from uh, a member of the town. "It's kind of worked out pretty nice for us. I don't care if you're a believer or not. I don't care if it's ever solved." just buy my shirts, buy my stuff here. (laughs) All right. And maybe we will.
1: Let's go on a field trip and buy some stuff.